Hello and welcome to the seventh episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. My name is Anna Pretoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joining me for this podcast are Moral McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Andrew Cook, who is a senior associate in the disputes team with a particular expertise in insolvency-related litigation. In this edition, I'll consider some developments relating to disclosure and witness evidence, including an update on reforms in both areas. Then Maura will look at a few recent cases relating to class actions, which have become an increasingly prominent feature of litigation in this jurisdiction. And finally, Andrew will look at some issues Brexit gives rise to in the insolvency context. You can find more information on all of the cases and developments we discuss through the links on the podcast page. So I'm going to start off with disclosure and the Court of Appeals decision in the Phones for You case. In that case, the court decided that where personal devices belonging to the defendant's employees and ex-employees contained potentially relevant work-related emails and messages, the court could order the defendants to request those individuals to deliver up the devices for inspection by the defendant's IT consultants. So the order didn't require the employees and ex-employees to hand over their devices. It merely required the defendants to ask them to do so. The defendants argued that since the individuals couldn't be compelled to hand over the devices if they didn't fall within the defendant's control, the court couldn't require the defendants to ask them to do so voluntarily. But the Court of Appeal disagreed. It left open the question as to whether the devices themselves fell within the defendant's control for disclosure purposes. It didn't need to decide that since the parties had agreed that the work-related documents on the devices fell within the defendant's control. And while the court accepted that it couldn't order disclosure of documents that are not within a party's control, it could make orders directing how disclosure was to be given, including what searches are to be undertaken to locate documents within the party's control. And and that could include requiring a party to make requests of third parties. It's not clear how often such an order will be made. This was a a competition case involving allegations of collusive behaviour and the court clearly took into account the fact that in such cases, individuals may deliberately avoid using their work email or work devices so as to conceal their dealings. And in many cases, given the potential for the third parties to refuse a request to hand over material voluntarily, a party might prefer to make an application for specific disclosure against the opponent or a direct application for disclosure from the third parties. But the decision is interesting in showing the breadth and flexibility of the court's powers to ensure that relevant documents are before the court. Moving on then to another Court of Appeal decision in Bilta and uh, Tradition Financial Services. Uh, this time when the court will adjourn a trial because an important witness isn't available. The court held that the 
test is whether refusing to grant the adjournment would lead to an unfair trial. And the test is the same whether it's a, a party's own unavailability or the lack of availability of an important witness that's an issue. And while the focus here was on unfairness to the party rather than the witness, the decision suggests that fairness to the witness is also relevant, particularly where the case could have serious consequences for them personally or professionally. Of course, whether a trial can be conducted fairly without a particular witness will depend on the circumstances of each case. In some cases, the contemporaneous documents may be more important than the oral evidence, and so a fair trial is possible. However, where, as in this case, there's an accusation of dishonesty, well, that's seen as a a paradigm example where the trial judge will benefit from seeing the witness being cross-examined, and so an, an adjournment may be more likely. And lastly from me, an update on the reforms to disclosure and witness evidence, which we've spoken about in previous podcasts. Firstly, the new practice direction and statement of best practice governing trial witness statements in the business and property courts at practice direction 57AC, which will come to force on 6th April and will apply to trial witness statements signed after that date, subject to a few exceptions. Hopefully, most listeners will be familiar with the new rules already, as statements signed shortly after 6th April are likely to have been in the course of preparation for some time. Uh, For those that aren't, though, it's well worth getting to grips with the new rules, as they do involve quite significant changes in practice including new obligations to identify documents the witness has referred to or been referred to for the purpose of providing the evidence, and to state how well the witness recalls important disputed matters of fact. Second, uh, amendments to the disclosure pilot rules at uh, perhaps Direction 51U will also take effect on 6th April. These include various helpful points of clarification, such as the timing of the obligation to disclose known adverse documents and the circumstances in which document preservation notices need to be sent to former employees. But it's fair to say that there are no very fundamental changes and the Disclosure Working Group is still looking at potential reforms to improve the way the pilot rules function and hopefully remove some of the complexity. I'll hand over now to Maura. Thanks, Anna. I'm going to look at three recent decisions in the class actions context, spending most time on the first. That's a decision in Okpabi and Shell, in which the Supreme Court held that the English court has jurisdiction over claims brought by over 40,000 individuals against Royal Dutch Shell and its Nigerian subsidiary relating to alleged environmental damage from operations in Nigeria. That case was mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, but at that point we hadn't yet had the Supreme Court's decision. It's an example of what's sometimes referred to as class action tourism, where large group claims are brought against UK domiciled parent companies relating to the activities of their subsidiaries abroad, often in the mining and energy industries. 
And in recent years, we've seen a number of these claims being pursued in the English courts. The general strategy adopted by claimants is to use the UK domiciled parent as an anchor defendant to allow other relevant group companies to be joined to the English litigation, even though there's often little connection with England apart from the domicile of the parent company. But to get these claims off the ground, there has to be an arguable claim against the parent in relation to the relevant acts. And so the question of whether and if so when a parent company owes a direct duty of care to those affected by the acts or omissions of a foreign subsidiary has become a very hot topic in this context. And there have been conflicting decisions in the appellate courts. So, for example, in the Vedanta case in which this firm is acting, the Supreme Court found it was arguable that the parent company owed a duty of care relating to alleged environmental pollution arising from the mining operations of its Zambian subsidiary. But in Okpabi, in contrast, the Court of Appeal took a, a stricter line, finding that there was no arguable duty. Essentially, it took the view that there wasn't enough that a parent company had issued mandatory group-wide policies. The claimants had to establish that the parent had exercised control over operations in a more substantial way. But the Supreme Court has now overturned that decision, finding that there was an arguable duty of care, and so that question will need to go to trial. The Supreme Court's decision emphasizes that in assessing this question at the jurisdiction stage, the judge shouldn't be drawn into a, a mini trial, but should accept the claimant's factual assertions unless, exceptionally, they're demonstrably untrue or unsupportable, as the court put it. Now, overall, it seems likely that the Supreme Court's decision will pave the way for more claims of this sort to be brought in the English courts, because on this approach, it will often be difficult for defendants to cut them off at an early stage by persuading the court that there's no arguable duty of care. But on the other hand, as we've mentioned previously, uh, where claims have been issued since the beginning of this year, there's the prospect of the English court declining to exercise jurisdiction against the parent company if it considers that there's another available form that's clearly more appropriate, something that the court wasn't previously able to do where the parent was UK domiciled under the recast Brussels regulation that applied to cases issued up to the end of last year. So that might give defendants another option for seeing off these sorts of claims so far as the English courts are concerned, where the claims have little connection with the jurisdiction. Although I should say if the UK is able to rejoin the Lugano Convention, which it's applied to do, but EU consent is needed, then the position will again be as it was and the English court will almost certainly not have a discretion to decline jurisdiction over the UK domiciled parent on forum non-convenience grounds. So we'll have to wait and see how all these factors play out. So another case I want to mention is the G4S case in which this firm is acting. And that's a shareholder class action under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. The High Court has recently issued a judgment striking out approximately 90% of the claims by quantum. Now, the key problem for the claimants was that they had issued the claim very shortly before the expiry of an arguable limitation period. And then they had sought to amend the claim form to add new claimants, relying on CPR 17.1, which provides that a party can amend its statement of case at any time before it's been served. But the court agreed with the defendant that this rule couldn't be used to join new claimants with distinct claims. It was really intended to allow an existing claimant to amend their claim. 
And the appropriate course was for the new claimants to commence separate proceedings and then apply for the claims to be consolidated so that in that way, any accrued limitation defense the defendant had in respect of the new claims would be preserved. It, it couldn't be got round simply by adding the new claimants to the existing claim. And then finally for me, a judgment in the British Airways data event group litigation, which I think is the first judgment in that case, or at least it's the first that's publicly available. The decision deals with two points. First, the question of whether there should be an extension to the cutoff date for claimants to join the action. And although the court granted a short extension of two months, it rejected the claimant's application to extend the cutoff date until one year after the proposed trial on liability, which was obviously a fairly extreme proposal. And the court emphasised the important role that cutoff dates play in group litigation particularly in providing defendants with some degree of certainty as to the extent of their potential exposure, which uh, the court recognised would fundamentally influence a defendant's approach to settlement discussions. So I think that's likely to be helpful to defendants. And the other point was whether the costs of advertising for potential claimants to join group litigation, beyond merely publicising the making of the group litigation order, are recoverable. And the short answer, as shown by this and other decisions, is no, These are seen as costs of getting in business and so they're part of the overheads of the claimant firm. So again, I think that's helpful to defendants. Thanks, Maura. I'll now hand over to Andrew to look at Brexit and insolvency. Thanks, Anna. It's been a bumpy year uh, for legal developments in the restructuring and insolvency sphere. Around 12 months ago now, we had the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, which made the most far-reaching reforms to English insolvency law and generation. And while we were all still trying to get used to that, we had the further sea change at the end of 2020, when the UK and EU failed to reach agreements on cross-border insolvency matters at the end of the Brexit transitional period. At a very high level, the most significant consequence of this was that the European insolvency regulation no longer applies in the UK, meaning that UK insolvency proceedings are no longer automatically recognised in EU member states, and insolvency proceedings in EU member states are no longer automatically recognised in the UK. I'm going to focus in the next few minutes on what is probably the most important consequence for litigators, which is the impact on cross-border insolvency moratoriums. But before I deal with those, it's worth just noting that the increased uncertainty resulting from Brexit and uncertainty as to the cross-border impact of various tools in the insolvency toolkit is likely to uh, increase the amount of litigation that we see in the insolvency environment. Whether the uncertainty is a good or a bad thing is largely a question of perspective. Are you a creditor? Are you a debtor? If you're a creditor, are you looking to use that uncertainty in order to leverage your position in order to obtain a better return on investment? Turning then to the insolvency moratorium, what is an insolvency moratorium? Well, broadly speaking, it is a rule whereby when a company enters insolvency proceedings, uh, creditors are prevented from continuing or commencing individual actions against the debtor, rather than rushing off to court and trying to recover assets on a first-come, first-served basis, the creditors are instead encouraged or forced into participating in a collective proceeding for the realisation of the company's assets and the distribution to creditors in an orderly, fair, pro-rata way. However, the precise scope of a moratorium 
depends on the rules that give effect to it. Even in England, we have slightly different moratoriums for liquidation and administration. And when in a European context, you overlaid the fact that we were talking about insolvency laws in many member states, the scope for cross-border confusion as to the impact of a moratorium was significant. That's why the EU insolvency regulation dealt specifically with the impact of the opening of insolvency proceedings in an EU member state on the commencement or continuation of civil claims against the debtor. Take, by way of example, a French company that is a proposed defendant to English proceedings brought by an English claimant. If the French company entered a French insolvency proceeding before the EU insolvency regulation ceased to apply in the UK, the EU insolvency regulation then made clear that French law would determine whether the English creditor could commence proceedings against the French debtor anywhere in the EU. However, if the English creditor had already managed to commence proceedings against the French debtor in England, the regulation made clear that then English law would apply to the question of whether those English civil proceedings could continue or should be stayed. In practice, that might not actually be a great result for the English creditor because EU Court of Justice case law made clear that even if the English proceedings were allowed to continue, they were to do so only to determine the rights and liabilities of the parties, not to allow the creditor to enforce against the debtor's assets. Even then, the creditor wasn't allowed to jump the queue uh, and enforce. Now that the EU regulation no longer applies in the UK, the entry of the French debtor into the French insolvency proceedings doesn't have any automatic effect in England. Instead, under the Cross-Border Insolvency Regulations 2006, which give effect in England to the UNCITRAL Model Law on Insolvency, the French office holder, insolvency office holder, is entitled to apply to the English courts for recognition. That process is not very difficult, it's largely a tick box exercise. If the French insolvency office holder is successful in obtaining recognition, then the automatic consequence of that under the cross-border insolvency regulations is not that the French moratorium is imported into England whatever that French moratorium may provide. Instead, the English law moratorium, which would have applied to an English liquidation, is applied in respect of that French debtor. The English law moratorium prevents both the commencement and continuation of proceedings, not always the case for foreign law moratoriums. So whereas under the old law, the English creditor who had already commenced its proceedings, would have regard to English law and case management in relation to whether uh, the civil proceedings could be continued. Now, English insolvency law will apply to determine whether the English creditor can continue the proceedings against the French debtor. Because the English stay on proceedings is quite broad, it may well be that the English creditor in those circumstances is effectively going to have to give up the English proceedings and go to France to participate in the French proceedings. Some listeners may be surprised at that result. For example, uh, if the English creditor had been proceeding in England under an English exclusive jurisdiction clause, 
it seems a little strange that the English creditor can, in effect, be forced to go to France to obtain uh, any relief, or indeed in order to uh, prove its claim, prove its rights uh, and the French debtor's liabilities. There may be a route out for the English creditor. The English law moratorium permits uh, the moratorium to be lifted in certain circumstances, usually if there's going to be significant unfairness to an English creditor, for example, uh, because a, a limitation period might be missed if proceedings cannot be commenced. But actually, the situations in which the moratorium is lifted are incredibly narrow, and it seems unlikely that it would be lifted simply in order to allow an English creditor to proceed in England because he doesn't want to participate in the French proceedings. The key message for English creditors in the example I've given is that before uh, commencing proceedings where the defendant is at least at risk of going into an insolvency proceeding, think very carefully about the end game. Work out whether the English proceedings are going to be brought to an end at some point uh, as a result of the intervention of a moratorium. And with that, I'll hand back to Anna. Thank you, Andrew. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to Bora and to Andrew and to all of you for listening. We'll be back with our next edition in a couple of months.